Tiberius, Part One, of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Tiberius, Part One. The patrician family of the Claudi, for there was a plebeian family of the same name, no way inferior to the other either in power or dignity, came originally from Regili, a town of the Sabines. They removed thence to Rome soon after the building of the city with a great body of their dependents under Titus Tatitus, who reigned jointly with Romulus in the kingdom, or, perhaps, what is related upon better authority, under Atta Claudius, the head of the family, who was admitted by the Senate into the patrician order six years after the expulsion of the Tarquins. They likewise received from the state lands beyond the Anio for their followers, and the burying place for themselves near the capital. After this period, in process of time, the family had the honor of twenty-eight consulships, five dictatorships, seven censorships, seven triumphs, and two ovations. Their descendants were distinguished by various praenomina and cognomina, but rejected by common consent the praenomen of Lucius, when, of the two races who bore it, one individual had been convicted of robbery and another of murder. Amongst other cognomina, they assumed that of Nero, which, in the Sabine language, signifies strong and valiant. It appears from record that many of the Claudi have performed signal services to the state, as well as committed acts of delinquency. To mention the most remarkable only, Appius Caecus dissuaded the Senate from agreeing to an alliance with Pyrrhus, as prejudicial to the Republic. Claudius Candex first passed the Straits of Sicily with a fleet, and drove the Carthaginians out of the island. Claudius Nero cut off Hasdrubal with a vast army upon his arrival in Italy from Spain, before he could form a junction with his brother Hannibal. On the other hand, Claudius Appius Regillanus, one of the Decemvirs, made a violent attempt to have a free virgin, of whom he was enamoured, adjudged a slave, which caused the people to secede a second time from the Senate. Claudius Drusus erected a statue of himself, wearing a crown at Appii Forum, and endeavored, by means of his dependents, to make himself master of Italy. Claudius Pulcher, when, of the coast of Sicily, the pullets used for taking augury would not eat, in contempt of the omen threw them overboard, as if they should drink at least, if they would not eat and then engaging the enemy, was routed. After his defeat, when he was ordered by the Senate to name a dictator, making a sort of jest of the public disaster, he named Glycius his apparitor. The women of this family, likewise, exhibited characters equally opposed to each other. For both the Claudias belonged to it, she, who, when the ship freighted with things sacred to the Idaean mother of the gods, stuck fast in the shallows of the Tiber, got it off by praying to the goddess with a loud voice, Follow me if I am chased. 
and she also, who, contrary to the usual practice in the case of women, was brought to trial by the people for treason, because, when her litter was stopped by a great crowd in the streets, she openly exclaimed, I wish my brother, Pulcher, was alive now, to lose another fleet that Rome might be less thronged. Besides, it was well known that all the Claudii, except Publius Claudius, who, to effect the banishment of Cicero, procured himself to be adopted by a plebeian, and one younger than himself, were always of the patrician party, as well as great sticklers for the honor and power of that order, and so violent and obstinate in their opposition to the plebeians, that not one of them, even in the case of a trial for life by the people, would ever condescend to put on mourning, according to custom, or make any supplication to them for favor, and some of them in their contests have even proceeded to lay hands on the tribunes of the people. A vestal virgin likewise of the family, when her brother was resolved to have the honor of a triumph contrary to the will of the people, mounted the chariot with him, and attended him into the capital, that it might not be lawful for any of the tribunes to interfere and forbid it. From this family Tiberius Caesar is descended, indeed both by the father and mother's side, by the former from Tiberius Nero, and by the latter from Appius Pulcher, who were both sons of Appius Caecus. He likewise belonged to the family of the Levi, by the adoption of his mother's grandfather into it, which family, although plebeian, made a distinguished figure, having had the honor of eight consulships, two censorships, three triumphs, one dictatorship, and the office of master of the horse, and was famous for eminent men, particularly Salinator and the Drusi. Salinator, in his censorship, branded all the tribes for their inconstancy in having made him consul a second time, as well as censor, although they had condemned him to a heavy fine after his first consulship. Drusus procured for himself and his posterity a new surname, by killing in single combat Drausus, the enemy's chief. He is likewise said to have recovered, when proprietor in the province of Gaul, the gold which was formerly given to the Senones, at the siege of the capital, and had not, as is reported, been forced from them by Camillus. His great-great-grandson, who, for his extraordinary services against the Gracchi, was styled the patron of the Senate, left a son, who, while plotting in a sedition of the same description, was treacherously murdered by the opposite party. But the father of Tiberius Caesar, being quested to Caius Caesar, and commander of his fleet in the war of Alexandria, contributed greatly to its success. He was therefore made one of the high priests in the room of Publius Scipio, and was sent to settle some colonies in Gaul, and amongst the rest those of Narbonne and Arles. After the assassination of Caesar, however, when the rest of the senators, for fear of public disturbances, were for having the affair buried in oblivion, he proposed a resolution for rewarding those who had killed the tyrant, having filled the office of praetor, and at the end of the year a disturbance breaking out amongst the triumviri, he kept the badges of his office beyond the legal time, and following Lucius Antonius the consul, brother of the triumvir, to Perusia, though the rest submitted, yet he himself continued firm to the party, and escaped first to Praeneste and then to Naples, whence, 
having in vain invited the slaves to liberty, he fled over to Sicily. But resenting his not being immediately admitted into the presence of Sextus Pompey, and being also prohibited the use of the Fasces, he went over into Achaia to Mark Antony, with whom, upon a reconciliation soon after brought about amongst the several contending parties, he returned to Rome, and, at the request of Augustus, gave up to him his wife, Livia Drusilla, although she was then big with child, and had before borne him a son. He died not long after, leaving behind him two sons, Tiberius and Drusus Nero. Some have imagined that Tiberius was born at Fundi, but there is only this trifling foundation for the conjecture, that his mother's grandmother was of Fundi, and that the image of good fortune was, by a decree of the Senate, erected in a public place in that town. But according to the greatest number of writers, and those two of the best authority, he was born at Rome, in the Palatine Quarter, upon the 16th of the Calends of December, 16th November, when Marcus Aemilius Lepidus was second-time consul, with Lucius Munatius Plancus, after the Battle of Philippi, for so it is registered in the calendar, and the public acts. According to some, however, he was born the preceding year, in the consulship of Hirtius and Pansa, and others say in the year following, during the consulship of Servilius Isauricus and Antony. His infancy and childhood were spent in the midst of danger and trouble, for he accompanied his parents everywhere in their flight, and twice at Naples nearly betrayed them by his crying, when they were privately hastening to a ship, as the enemy rushed into the town. Once, when he was snatched from his nurse's breast, and again from his mother's bosom, by some of the company who on the sudden emergency wished to relieve the woman of their burden, being carried through Sicily and Achaia, and entrusted for some time to the care of Lacedaemonians, who were under the protection of the Claudian family, upon his departure thence, when travelling by night, he ran the hazard of his life, by a fire which, suddenly bursting out of a wood on all sides, surrounded the whole party so closely, that part of Livia's dress and hair was burnt. The presents which were made him by Pompeia, sister to Sextus Pompey, in Sicily, namely, a cloak with a clasp, and bola of gold, are still in existence, and shown at Baiae, to this day. After his return to the city, being adopted by Marcus Gallius, a senator, in his will, he took possession of the estate, but soon afterwards declined the use of his name, because Gallius had been of the party opposed to Augustus. When only nine years of age, he pronounced a funeral oration in praise of his father upon the rostra, and afterwards, when he had nearly attained the age of manhood, he attended the chariot of Augustus, in his triumph for the victory at Actium, riding on the left-hand horse, whilst Marcellus, Octavius' son, rode that on the right. He likewise presided at the games celebrated on account of that victory, and in the Trojan games, intermixed with the Circensian, he commanded a troop of the biggest boys. After assuming the manly habit, he spent his youth and the rest of his life until he succeeded to the government in the following manner. He gave the people an entertainment of gladiators, in memory of his father, and another for his grandfather Drusus, at different times and in different places. 
the first in the forum, the second in the amphitheatre. Some gladiators who had been honourably discharged, being induced to engage again by a reward of a hundred thousand sesterces. He likewise exhibited public sports, at which he was not present himself. All these he performed with great magnificence, at the expense of his mother and father-in-law. He married Agrippina, the daughter of Marcus Agrippa, and granddaughter of Caecilius Atticus, a Roman knight, the same person to whom Cicero has addressed so many epistles. After having by her his son Drusus, he was obliged to part with her, though she retained his affection and was again pregnant, to make way for marrying Augustus' daughter Julia. But this he did with extreme reluctance, for besides having the warmest attachment to Agrippina, he was disgusted with the conduct of Julia, who had made indecent advances to him during the lifetime of her former husband, and that she was a woman of loose character was the general opinion. At divorcing Agrippina, he felt the deepest regret, and upon meeting her afterwards he looked after her with eyes so passionately expressive of affection that care was taken she should never again come in his sight. At first, however, he lived quietly and happily with Julia, but a rupture soon ensued, which became so violent, that after the loss of their son, the pledge of their union, who was born at Aquileia and died in infancy, he never would sleep with her more. He lost his brother Drusus in Germany, and brought his body to Rome, travelling all the way on foot before it. When he first applied himself to civil affairs, he defended the several causes of King Archelaus, the Trallians, and the Thessalians, before Augustus, who sat as judge at the trials. He addressed the Senate on behalf of the Laodicians, the Thyatireans, and Chians, who had suffered greatly by an earthquake, and implored relief from Rome. He prosecuted Fannius Caepio, who had been engaged in a conspiracy with Varro Muraena against Augustus, and procured sentence of condemnation against him. Amidst all this he had besides to superintend two departments of the administration, that of supplying the city with corn, which was then very scarce, and that of clearing the houses of correction throughout Italy, the masters of which had fallen under the odious suspicion of seizing and keeping confined, not only travellers, but those whom the fear of being obliged to serve in the army had driven to seek refuge in such places. He made his first campaign as a military tribune in the Cantabrian War. Afterwards he led an army into the east, where he restored the kingdom of Armenia to Tigranes, and seated on a tribunal, put a crown upon his head. He likewise recovered from the Parthians the standards which they had taken from Crassus. He next governed, for nearly a year, the province of Gallia Comata, which was then in great disorder, on account of the incursions of the barbarians, and the foits of the chiefs. He afterwards commanded in the several wars against the Raetians, Vindelicians, Pannonians, and Germans. In the Raetian and Vindelician wars, he subdued the nations in the Alps, and in the Pannonian wars, the Bruci, and the Dalmatians. In the German war he transplanted into Gaul forty thousand of the enemy, who had submitted and assigned them lands near the banks of the Rhine. For these actions he entered the city with an ovation, 
but riding in a chariot, and is said, by some, to have been the first that ever was honoured with this distinction. He filled early the principal offices of state, and passed through the quaestorship, praetorship, and consulate, almost successively. After some interval he was chosen consul a second time, and held the tribunician authority during five years. Surrounded by all this prosperity, in the prime of life and in excellent health, he suddenly formed the resolution of withdrawing to a greater distance from Rome. It is uncertain whether this was the result of disgust for his wife, whom he neither durst accuse nor divorce, and the connection with whom became every day more intolerable, or to prevent that indifference towards him which his constant residence in the city might produce, or in the hope of supporting and improving by absence his authority in the state if the public should have occasion for his service. Some are of opinion that as Augustus' sons were now grown up to years of maturity, he voluntarily relinquished the possession of he had long enjoyed of the second place in the government, as Agrippa had done before him, who, when M. Marcellus was advanced to public offices, retired to Mytilene, that he might not seem to stand in the way of his promotion, or in any respect lessen him by his presence. The same reason likewise Tiberius gave afterwards for his retirement, but this pretext at this time was, that he was satiated with honours and desirous of being relieved from the fatigue of business, requesting therefore that he might have leave to withdraw. And neither the earnest entreaties of his mother, nor the complaint of his father-in-law, made even in the senate, that he was deserted by him, could prevail upon him to alter his resolution. Upon their persisting in the design of detaining him, he refused to take any sustenance for four days together. At last, having obtained permission, leaving his wife and son at Rome, he proceeded to Ostia, without exchanging a word with those who attended him, and having embraced but very few persons at parting. From Ostia, journeying along the coast of Campania, he halted a while on receiving intelligence of Augustus being taken ill, but this giving rise to a rumour that he stayed with a view to something extraordinary, he sailed with the wind almost full against him, and arrived at Rhodes, having been struck with the pleasantness and healthiness of the island, at the time of his landing therein, his return from Armenia. Here contenting himself with a small house, and a villa not much larger, near the town, he led entirely a private life, taking his walks sometimes about the gymnasia, without any lictor or other attendant, and returning the civilities of the Greeks, with almost as much complacence as if he had been upon a level with them. One morning, in settling the course of his daily excursion, he happened to say that he should visit all the sick people in the town. This being not rightly understood by those about him, the sick were brought into a public portico, and ranged in order, according to their several distempers. Being extremely embarrassed by this unexpected occurrence, he was for some time irresolute how he should act, but at last he determined to go round them all, and make an apology for the mistake, even to the meanest amongst them, and such as were entirely unknown to him. One instance only is mentioned in which he appeared to exercise his tribunician authority, being a constant attendant upon the schools and lecture-rooms of the professors of the liberal arts, 
an occasion of the quarrel amongst the wrangling sophists, in which he interposed to reconcile them, some person took the liberty to abuse him as an intruder, and partial in the affair. Upon this, withdrawing privately home, he suddenly returned attended by his officers, and summoning his accuser before his tribunal, by a public crier, ordered him to be taken to prison. Afterwards he received tidings that his wife Julia had been condemned for her lewdness and adultery, and that a bill of divorce had been sent to her in his name, by the authority of Augustus. Though he secretly rejoiced at this intelligence, he thought it incumbent upon him, in point of decency, to interpose in her behalf by frequent letters to Augustus, and to allow her to retain the presence which he had made her, notwithstanding the little regard she merited from him. When the period of his tribunation, authority expired, declaring at last that he had no other object in his retirement than to avoid all suspicion of rivalship with Caius and Lucius, he petitioned that, since he was now secure in that respect, as they were come to the age of manhood, and would easily maintain themselves in possession of the second place in the state, he might be permitted to visit his friends, whom he was very desirous of seeing. But his request was denied, and he was advised to lay aside all concern for his friends, whom he had been so eager to greet. He therefore continued at Rhodes, much against his will, obtaining with difficulty, through his mother, the title of Augustus Lieutenant, to cover his disgrace. He thenceforth lived, however, not only as a private person, but as one suspected and under apprehension, retiring into the interior of the country, and avoiding the visits of those who sailed that way, which were very frequent, for no one passed to take command of an army, or the government of a province, without touching at Rhodes. But there are fresh reasons for increased anxiety. For crossing over to Samos, on a visit to his stepson Caius, who had been appointed governor of the east, he found him prepossessed against him by the insinuations of Marcus Lollius, his companion and director. He likewise fell under suspicion of sending by some centurions, who had been promoted by himself, upon their return to the camp after a furlough, mysterious messages to several persons there, intended, apparently, to tamper with them for a revolt. The jealousy respecting his designs, being intimated to him by Augustus, he begged repeatedly that some person of any of the three orders might be placed as a spy upon him in everything he either said or did. He laid aside likewise his usual exercises of riding and arms, and quitting the Roman habit, made use of the pallium and crepida. In this condition he continued almost two years, becoming daily an object of increasing contempt and odium, insomuch that the people of Nismus pulled down all the images and statues of him in their town, and upon mention being made of him at table, one of the company said to Caius, I will sail over to Rhodes immediately, if you desire me, and bring you the head of the exile. For that was the appellation now given him. Thus alarmed, not only by apprehensions, but real danger, he renewed his solicitations for leave to return, and seconded by the most urgent supplications of his mother, he at last obtained his request, to which an accident somewhat contributed. 
Augustus had resolved to determine nothing in the affair, but with the consent of his eldest son. The latter was at the time out of humor with Marcius Lollius, and therefore easily disposed to be favorable to his father-in-law. Caius thus acquiescing, he was recalled, but upon condition that he should take no concern whatever in the administration of affairs. He returned to Rome after an absence of nearly eight years, with great and confident hopes of his future elevation, which he had entertained from his youth, in consequence of various prodigies and predictions. For Livia, when pregnant with him, being anxious to discover, by different modes of divination, whether her offspring would be a son, amongst others, took an egg from a hen that was sitting, and kept it warm with her own hands, and those of her maids, by turns, until a fine cocked chicken with a large comb was hatched. Scribonius, the astrologer, predicted great things of him when he was a mere child. He will come in time, said the prophet, to be even a king, but without the usual badge of royal dignity. The rule of the Caesars being as yet unknown, when he was making his first expedition and leading his army through Macedonia into Syria, the altars which had been formerly consecrated by Philippi, by the victorious legions, blazed suddenly with spontaneous fires. Soon after, as he was marching to Illyricum, he stopped to consult the oracle of Gerion, near Padua, and having drawn a lot by which he was desired to throw golden tally into the fountain of Oponus, for an answer to his inquiries, he did so, and the highest numbers came up. And those very tally are still to be seen at the bottom of the fountain. A few days before his leaving Rhodes, an eagle, a bird never before seen in that island, perched on the top of his house. And the day before he received intelligence of the permission granted him to return. As he was changing his dress, his tunic appeared to be all on fire. He then likewise had a remarkable proof of the skill of Thrasyllus, the astrologer, whom, for his proficiency in philosophical researches, he had taken into his family. For upon sight of the ship which brought the intelligence, he said, good news was coming whereas everything going wrong before, and quite contrary to his predictions, Tiberius had intended that very moment, when they were walking together, to throw him into the sea as an impostor, and one to whom he had too hastily entrusted his secrets. End of Tiberius, Part 1